the question was to speak a little bit about the quality of acceptance, especially with regard to the hindrances, so that we're not either indulging them or pushing them away. There's a magic mantra, which is 100% guaranteed. And the story behind this mantra is uh, at a time when I was working with a lot of fear. You know, it was just strong fear was coming up in my practice. And it was primal. It wasn't even, you know, fear about anything in particular. It was just the energy of fear. Uh, it was so intense that it's like I was afraid to go from sitting position to standing position. You know, that was, so it wasn't rational, but it was just that very strong energy. And I was, you know, working with this for days and noting it, you know, fear, fear, fear. But it just didn't seem to do anything. Then about the third or fourth day of working through this, I was outside, sun retreat here. I was just outside doing walking meditation and something shifted in me. And that shift was articulated in my mind by the thought If this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And it was amazing that it's okay. If it's here for the rest of my life, it's okay. I realized that that was actually the first moment of acceptance. All the time I was noting it, I was really noting with an agenda. (laughs) You know, I'll note you, but please go away. And of course, that's not acceptance and it's not mindfulness. But I thought I was being mindful. You know, it was only when the mind dropped down into that space, if it's here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And it was amazing. In that moment, after being lodged in it for days, in that moment, it all washed through. And it's not, of course, that fear hasn't come back since then, but the relationship to it has changed a lot. So the magic mantra is... It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And so you kind of remind yourself, you, you coach yourself into that place. Uh, and it's actually very helpful. It, it, it's okay. <laughs> Whatever it is. And of course, just in the course of practice, it may be that it'll, you know, just, you'll drop into that space of acceptance just in the first moment of remembering it's okay. You know, and you might feel just everything settle in that sense of allowing. It may take some time, you know, where you just remind yourself, remind yourself, remind yourself, and then all of a sudden, at a certain point, the mind really let's go of the resistance or let's go of the wanting and it's just okay, let it be the way it is. Whenever it does drop into that space, that accepting space, see if you can recognize, it's like notice the, that particular quality of the heart, of the mind. What does it feel like in that moment of it's okay? Because the more clearly you recognize the space, then the easier it is to uh, access it. You know, so it's almost like we get familiar with the space of acceptance, and then it becomes a more natural mode. You know, and at a certain point, we could say it almost becomes the default mode, that we're mostly in acceptance, and then every once in a while we get pulled out of it. Yeah, the, so the question about what does it mean to say noting with an agenda? <clears throat> the nature of the noting mind, right, or the quality of the noting mind, you could think of it as kind of the mirror-like wisdom of the mind. That is a mirror 
simply reflects what comes in front of us. There's no choice, there's no preference, there's no, I think I'll reflect this but not that. Right? The mirror reflects everything impartially because its nature is to reflect. So the noting is really a shorthand. And when we say noting, even though we actually may be using the word, it's really shorthand for a whole understanding of what mindfulness means. Right? So it's the simple knowing and recognition of what it is that's arising. But very often, as you've experienced, I'm sure, we may know what's arising and we like it, or we don't like it, or we want something else, you know, or we're fearful of it, or we're all kinds of, we can be in all kinds of relationships to the object, even as we know what it is. So not, the simple knowing of what it is does not necessarily mean we're being mindful and accepting and simply reflecting that mirror-like wisdom. So when I say noting with an agenda, I mean all those other things. You know, we're knowing it, but we want to get rid of it. We're knowing it, and we really like it, and we'd like it to stay. Very often, and this is where the mental, or the tool of mental noting sometimes can be very helpful, very often the tone of the note in the mind will illuminate the agenda. You know, if you're paying attention to the tone of the note, very often you might recognize the mental tone of impatience, or fear, or grasping. And so the tone can sometimes show us something that's going on which we may not have noticed without the note. So pay attention to the tone of the note. Um, You know, what's so amazing is that the practice is incredibly simple. It's just that our minds have gotten so complicated that somehow simplicity has become difficult. You know, and Munindraji, my first teacher, used to say often, it's simple but not easy. <laughs> it is very simple. All we're doing is sitting back or walking or moving about and simply knowing mindfully what it is that's arising. You know, it's... And it's even... It's even simpler in the sense only six things ever arise. You know, in all of our experience, it's, only, it's either a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation in the body, or some mind object. You know, a thought or an image or an emotion. So it's only six things that, are happen- that we have to know. So can we sit back and listen to this six-instrument chamber, chamber uh, ensemble? And so just sit back, listen to the music. You know, there you know, seeing, hearing, feeling. And our job is just to listen, it's just to know. That's all. But our habits of mind, as we know, are just very strong, and we jump in getting involved in all kinds of ways. You know, and so we're really practicing simplicity. We're practicing coming back to this very natural quality of awareness. Uh, I think the counting in that way can be a helpful can be helpful uh, at times. Uh, 
because it is strengthening uh, or is helping to strengthen the concentration factor. You know, it's an aid kind of in keeping the mind steady on the breath. Um, I wouldn't do it all the time because... The number is really a concept that doesn't have anything to do with the experience. It's a total abstraction that has nothing to do. It's not pointing in any way to the actual experience of the sensations of the breath. Right? It's a tool simply for kind of bringing the mind back for the samadhi or the one-pointedness aspect. So in terms of that, it's helpful. In terms of the actual insight into the characteristics of the breath, it doesn't particularly serve that, you know, and could even uh, at times obscure it a little bit because the mind gets uh, more concerned with the count than the actual, you know, looking or feeling the, the changing sensations. So I would use it at times, you know, and then at other times really focus your attention, you know, with each in-breath and with each out-breath to focus in and to feel of the changing sensations of the breath because then you're developing insight into the impermanence and the insubstantiality of it. Um, when you got up to in out 23 or, or when you were counting, did you notice whether within the time of a breath the mind went off the object at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Yeah, so use it at times, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, as I said, I think it's fine to use to use at times. Um, Um, there's a lot in what you're asking and there are going to be many talks over the next weeks about impermanence. In terms of our practice, I think it's helpful at different times through the day to be paying attention to impermanence on many different levels. Because we can key into it on a very microscopic level, you know, where we're feeling the momentary change, the flow, the current of the sensations in the breath, you know, within one breath or one rising movement or within one step. This a huge amount going on. You know, and, and here's where slowing down, of course, really helps, because when, you, when you're moving slowly, and there's just, it's moment, 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 you know, so many changing sensations happening. So we really begin to feel the momentariness of phenomena on that very microscopic level. Can also be aware, you know, moving... Uh, a little up from the microscopic level, 
we can be aware of the changing nature, just of change of postures through the day. Just notice all the changes of posture. We can notice the changes, you know, externally to ourselves, night and day, changes of weather, changes of season. So wherever we look, this truth of impermanence is manifesting itself. The more we are actually in the experience of impermanence, so that we're not knowing it conceptually, but we're right there in the experience of knowing the change, notice the quality of your mind. And so this can be this can be an investigation for you. When you are aware of change on whatever of these levels you're keying into, in the moments of awareness, notice the state or the quality of your mind. I'll give you a little clue. I think you'll notice, or let's say that I've noticed, that in those times when I'm really in the awareness of change, the mind is not grasping. You know, it's like sitting by the side of a river, you know, and you're just watching the the current of the river, the flow of the river. When we're aware of the flow, when we're aware of the current, the mind is not, you know, it's not trying to hold or fix anything because the impermanence, the flow of impermanence is so clear. So the more we practice that, the more we learn to abide in the mind of no clinging. Right? Because we see, first we see the futility of clinging to that which is changing, but more than that, more than kind of that conceptual understanding, we're in the experience of the mind that's not clinging. You know, and we've, we've recognized that. We've recognized what it's like. So that's one whole piece. The other piece in what you were asking... No, we'll just go back a minute. So much of how we feel is conditioned by the concepts we put on our experience. So, for example, two words which equally describe this process of impermanence have very different emotional um, tones. So we could describe the process of impermanence as change. Things are changing. We could experience it, we, could, we can language it as the experience of loss. Because in every moment of change there's a loss. There's something disappearing. We could language it in terms of birth. <laughs> because something new is arising. You know, so how we're viewing it is going to very much, or how we language it, is going to very much influence how we feel about it. So that's just another little piece. It's interesting that at the time of the death of the Buddha, you know, when all the disciples were around, the, the monks and the nuns and the lay people, it's said, you know, as the story goes, that all the beings around other than those who are arhans, who are fully enlightened, uh, were grieving at the loss. It said the arhans were not grieving at all because of the completion of the wisdom that all things are of the nature to change and their mind was free of attachment, free of attachment to anything, free of clinging to anything. It doesn't mean that they loved the Buddha less. It just means that they understood 
They understood the reality. They understood the truth of change. Right? And so there was no attachment. There was not a feeling, well, if only things didn't change. Well, most of us probably aren't arhants. Any arhants? <laughs> Please let me know. <laughs> the place is yours. <laughs> I think it's really an interesting exercise with respect to our relationships, given that we're not our hunts, probably, but for us to discern the difference between love and attachment. You know, because I think for most people, these two qualities get completely intertwined. And it's even hard for people to imagine love without attachment. You know, how, how could I not be attached to the people I love? Well, I think it's because we have not spent the time in discerning the difference between those two feelings or mind states. So when I look at that, in the times when I'm the most loving, when I feel the most loving, for me, the energy... It's like the energy is going out. It feels like a, you know, it feels like a generosity of the heart. You know, be happy, be well. You know, it's that energy of caring. Attachment, when I feel most attached, the experience is completely different. It's not this kind of generosity of that good feeling. It's a holding. When I'm feeling attached, it's like there's a grasping or a contraction in the heart. A holding. They're really quite opposite. And what's so amazing when we look in this way, when we, when we look in a discerning and dispassionate way, we're just investigating what's the nature of love, what's the nature of attachment, we see that attachment does not enhance the quality of love in any way. It's not as if attachment makes us more loving. In fact, quite the opposite. The more attached we are, the more fear there is, the more possessiveness there is, the more neurotic relationship there is. But usually we don't kind of take the time to really separate all this out. right? And so we just kind of live in the jumble of it. Um, So it's challenging, you know, and especially since we're not arhans, and, you know, we do have this whole complex of feelings. Uh, But I think it's well worth looking at. So there's a lot. I mean, your question contained a lot. The, the question or the comment was that there is you know, a huge amount of suffering in the world far beyond the capacity of any one person to relieve. So how does one relate to that? One framework for understanding that question You know, and it's really, it's a profound question for our lives. You know, what do we do? And especially, I mean, probably not any more now than ever, but it seems that way, you know, because we're so aware of so much of the suffering that's going on. One context for understanding that question, I think, is in an exploration of the Bodhisattva vows. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar, the Bodhisattva vow is in some traditions of Buddhism. And it's articulated in different ways, but kind of one of the ways it's often said, you know, beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Right? And 
that could be translated, I vow to awaken all beings, to help awaken all beings, to free them from suffering. Well, that's a noble, that's a noble aspiration. When I came across that, and this is, you know, you read it a lot in, in different Buddhist texts, it's like I, I knew it was a good idea, but I just couldn't relate to it. I said, how in the world? I mean, it's basically your question. Given the magnitude of suffering, it is way beyond what I would ever be able to do, you know, to alleviate. So it didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand a meaningful taking of that vow, even though I appreciated the the sentiment. But then at a certain point, my understanding of it shifted. And it had to do with understanding the relationship of emptiness or selflessness and compassion. Because for a long time I just saw them as two different aspects you know, of the teachings. There's compassion here and selflessness here. But at a certain point I realized that compassion is the activity of emptiness. Compassion is the activity of selflessness. The selfless, the experience or the, that the wisdom of selflessness, the realization of that manifests as compassion. So then the Bodhisattva vow, I just understood it in an entirely different way. Instead of it all resting on the shoulders of self, and, oh yeah, I'm going to take this vow to save all beings, which just seemed completely impossible. Instead of it resting on the shoulders of self, that vow was the expression of the wisdom of selflessness. It's just, the more we realize that, what follows is compassionate response. And there's no one who's shouldering it. Does this make sense? And it just became such a, for me, it became such a beautiful way of understanding. Yeah, the more I get out of the way, then compassion response happens in whatever way is possible, you know, in any particular circumstance. Uh, and then it's not, it's, it's not a question then of any one taking it on. So it, it almost becomes like just, you could say, a force of nature, a force of the Dharma. It's just wisdom manifesting as compassion. Which just goes on as long as, long as the wisdom mind is there. very different than kind of having the reference point of compassion and activity being a sense of self. I mean, it's still, it's still a wonderful activity to engage in, even if it's coming from a sense of self. Compassion is, is definitely a better response than a lot of other things. But it's of necessity limited Whereas when it's simply the manifestation of emptiness, there's, there's no limit. It's just and so. Uh, to me, this is just a, a a beautiful way of understanding what those bodhisattva vows mean. Sure.
Well, yes, uh, what, what was said? <laughs> there might have been some words of wisdom there from the back, <laughs> but I didn't hear them. <laughs> First, I, want, I don't want to make... I don't want to imply that either one is fully realized, you know, in selflessness on on one extreme or not at all. So I think we all have varying degrees of understanding. And even sort of in a very ordinary, common sense way of understanding selflessness, we could think of it as being in just ordinary, ordinary lives as lack of self-centeredness. You know, and there are lots of people who manifest that quality. And I think that's all part of the spectrum of the realization of emptiness. You know? And so it's really the same, it's the same uh, energy movement that I was talking about. It doesn't need to wait until we're fully enlightened. It's just, yeah. I really, I like that phrase a lot. Self-centered or lack of self-centeredness because it has a very, uh, it has a meaning for our ordinary everyday lives, but it also has a profound meaning. It's like somebody's self-centered. We know what they're kind of selfish or self-centered, where, where the view of self is at the center of things, you know, or not so self-centered. So it's it's just a a rich term for me, and one that's that one one I think that we can relate to easily. We know what we know what that means. When the question was, when you've done harm to somebody, uh, how can you work with that, or what? How do you respond to that in a skillful way? And this was saying he knows how to do guilt very well, but that doesn't seem the most skillful response. Um, yeah, I, I think that, again, it's it's a really good question that points to a very interesting distinction we can look at in our minds. You know, all of these questions, they're so great because it's like all the different understandings come out, really, of one's own inner work. And so everything I've said and I'm about to say are all coming out of my own meditation and inward looking and retreat space and I just it's great that you're in that space because that's the place to find out about all this you know it's really looking at one's own mind Uh, and so everything I say and I hope you take it this way is definitely not to believe you know it's really just suggestions for your own looking because that's where the wisdom is going to be it's not it's not just believing what somebody says I was on retreat, yeah, and this is years ago. I just had a massive attack of guilt of something that I had done. You know, that was I, I recognize it was unskillful, and I'm sitting. And of course, everything's often very magnified on retreat, you know, because of the concentration and the stillness. So I was just really wallowing in the guilt, and at a certain point, I was so hooked into it, I just. So I just got interested in how my mind was so hooked, and how I was getting so locked in to this feeling. And when I looked, and just as you indicated just now, 
when I looked, I saw that guilt is really an ego trip. There's a lot of self in guilt. It's basically, I'm so bad, with a big emphasis on the I. You know, I'm so bad, I did this, I, 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 I. And it's just reinforcing that sense of self. It's an unskillful state. It doesn't help us in any way. So then I began to look, and it's really what your question is, well, what's the proper response if guilt is not it? And I saw, and you know, in English we, we just, there are many different words that we might use. The word that I came up with to describe the state that seemed a lot more skillful to me was, the, was what I called remorse. Or it could be regret. But it's that sense of acknowledging yeah, that was, there was something unskillful there. That was an unskillful, unwholesome thing. So we're not denying it, we're not pushing it away. It's like we take responsibility for it and to see if there's any appropriate you know, action to, to remedy it if, or not. But it allows for the wisdom of seeing the impermanence of it and seeing or tapping into the forgiveness uh, that comes from seeing the impermanence. Yeah, that, that was not a good thing to do. Okay, let me learn from it. I'll try not to do that again. Okay, for you, three months. <laughs> really, the only, pen, the only penance that is worth anything is refraining from doing it in the future. Anything else is just a trip. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't serve anything. The situation and the person, it's all served by the wisdom of understanding. Yes, that was an unskillful thing to do. I won't do that again. And in that, there is really a lightness of heart, which is much more appropriate, because it's not denying it, and it's taking responsibility, and we're actually... We're following through in the appropriate way. You know, so I would be very watchful of the kind of, you know, there is this, some of our Western cultural religious conditioning about, you know, I should suffer because of it. It's just another unwholesome mind state. doesn't serve anything. It's not, it's not helping the person, and it's not helping us. And don't you have the sense when, when, either when in a situation where you've maybe done something unskillful, or you've, you're in some situation of suffering, or you know, something that's, that's weighing on you, isn't there a, you know, that wonderful feeling you have when you come to a place of understanding? Oh, that's what that's about. That's how my mind is getting caught. You know, understanding the unwholesomeness of a particular action. It's like the understanding brings a, a tremendous joy. You know, and that's why, and this, is go, this goes back to the first question about accepting, how to accept you know, the hindrances or other difficult states. Sort of in, in, in the early years of practice, it's very easy to fall into the pattern of judging oneself for the different defilements, the kalesas. That's the Pali word for defilement, you know, unwholesome states. We see all these parts of ourselves, you know, that the envy, the pride, the anger, the, the fear, the 
shame, the jealousy, you know, whatever, whatever the state is. And we see all this, and the first reaction is, we don't like it, and we don't like ourselves for having it, and so we just get caught in this kind of self-judging. But at a certain point in practice, we can actually come to a place where we delight in seeing them, where we really delight in seeing the defilements of mind because we would rather see them than not see them. You know? And that is a very genuine, I'd much rather be aware of the negative or unwholesome things in my mind than be unaware of them and just have them you know, doing their work. And so there, there really is that sense of joy. Oh, yeah, look at that. <laughs> uh, so I recommend that as an approach. It's much more helpful. Now, I think I wasn't... I didn't hear Miyoshin's talk last night, but did she, she talk, I think she talked about different kinds of conceit. And the, well, I, and she, maybe she mentioned this, that, con, that conceit is really not uprooted until one is an arhant. So every time one of those kinds of conceit arises in my mind and I see it, I am so happy. <laughs> because I think to myself, oh, in the seeing of it, I'm really working on arhantship now. <laughs> you know? I'm getting to this one that's right there at the very bottom. And it just feels good to, oh, got you. <laughs> it really is like that. I mean, you know, and that's, that just, that's just this whole quality of interest in our minds and, and seeing for ourselves, taking an interest. Okay, well, what are the things that cause suffering? You know, and how can I be free? That's the work we're doing. Mm-hmm. Could everybody hear that? Uh, the question was about uh, aiming and particularly with things that are arising in the mind, uh, like planning. And then kind of the planning arises and she sees the planning and then sees there's some wanting or desire behind it, but then doesn't quite know what to do beyond that and just goes back to the breath at that point. Is that I would be, um, let me say, I don't think you, sometimes the synapses don't quite work. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> increasingly so. <laughs> the investigation that you're asking about, I think, is most appropriate when you really feel caught in something. So when there's, when there's a thought loop or an emotion where, where you're really caught in it, then a deeper investigation, okay, what is it that's going on? Is there some feeling underneath that I'm not aware of? But if, for example, you note the planning and you note maybe the wanting that's in it, and then it, 
dissipates to some extent and you're able to go back to the breath, that's fine. You really don't have to do any more than that because the main thrust of the practice is to be aware of what's arising and seeing its impermanent nature. And so if you see it and you just you attend to it enough to see how it comes and goes and changes, that's sufficient. You, really, you, you don't really need to investigate more than that. Um, so if you can see that and, and you come back to the breath, uh, it's fine. If you find that you're really caught in something, and so is that what you were describing? Or? What, what, what meaning what? But what happens to it as you note it? What happens to whatever it is? Are you using the mental noting or not using it? That's possible. I mean, so something I would look sometimes when you, for example, with the breath, and you're feeling you're kind of there, but not really feeling it, not not being connected, as you said. Um, if you're using the noting at that time, you might see what happens if you drop the noting and are just. Uh, in the actual experience of it, it's possible at that time that the noting might be uh, getting in the way, you know, for you. It it doesn't need to, but it may be in the way you're doing it that that's what's happening. Um, Or just be a little careful about giving too much weight to depth. I think it's more important to be steady in the continuity. And and so whether it feels superficial to you or it feels deep to you, if you can stay with it, you know, it's almost like <laughs> giving a little more attention to the horizontal line than the vertical line. Then the whole practice will unfold and sometimes it'll feel deep and sometimes maybe it'll feel light and superficial, but you're there for all of that. Sometimes people are have a notion or have an idea of going deep or connecting deeply with the experience and the actual wanting of that is getting in the way. Because concentration develops through continuity of mindfulness. So the the more continuous the mindfulness is, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this, out of that the concentration comes and it's the concentration which gives that sense of connectedness and depth and stability. Um, So you might also just look at that to see if... uh, 
you're wanting a quality of experience as opposed to the simple acknowledgement of how it is. Um, I mean, I had an experience, this, this goes back many years. I mean, it's, it's not exactly what you're describing, but there's some, there's some similarities to it. I'd been practicing in India uh, for a couple of years, and at that time I had been studying with uh, the teacher Goenkaji. And then he does this sweeping method, of just going up and down the body and And it's this one period of intensive practice, I'd been sitting quite a long time, and it's just like the whole body opened up, and I had this amazing body of light. Every time I sat down, it was just, it was just light. I thought, boy, this is great. <laughs> I really liked it. <laughs> and then I, I needed to come home. I, I ran out of money, so <laughs> I needed to come back to the States to work a little bit, you know, but I was working and couldn't wait to get back to India, to back, back to my body of light. <laughs> I got back, you know, some months later, and it was a body of twisted steel. It was just... Uh, uh, uh. I, was, I was speaking to somebody in an interview today about this. Two years. Two years I was struggling to get back to what I considered the right depth or connection or openness, you know, or fluidity, whatever. You know, like there was some experience I wanted that wasn't there. It was the most difficult, frustrating two years of my practice. It was horrible, you know, because I was just pushing, pushing, pushing to get something. It took two years. I mean, it's amazing that it took so long for me to finally realize it's not about getting something, it's, being, it's about being aware of how things are. You know? And just when I could finally settle back and just relax, okay, body of twisted steel, fine. You know? It's okay. <laughs> if it's here for the rest of my life, it's okay. <laughs> That's when just there began to be some movement again. You know, and it's not that it went back to how it was, but I wasn't in that struggle of wanting. You know, so this, as I say, this may be a little different than what you're asking, but I, there may be something about that of wanting a certain kind of experience as opposed to just the simple knowing of how it is and the continuity. You know, as I say, that horizontal line. Oh, like this, like this, like this, like this. Okay, maybe yeah, last question. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the question was about kind of intense dream imagery, unpleasant, defilement-like <laughs> imagery. And so the question is whether there's anything 
to do about that in the waking, in the waking state, in terms of investigating, okay, what is that? Is that illuminating something about what's in my mind that I should look at? First, it's a very common experience, you know, on meditation. I've I've had the most. Dreams I couldn't even imagine having happened. <laughs> you know, just bizarre, weird stuff. <laughs> and kind of wake up, wow. <laughs> so that's in the mind too. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's not uncommon. You know, we're really, even, even though you may think nothing much is happening, you know, you're sitting and struggling, coming back to the breath, and it feels boring and all that. The mind is being worked on, you know, and it often can come out in the dream state. Uh, but I don't think there's anything in particular you need to do about that. It's just to know, you know, that things are getting... It's like, um, not that I have much farming experience, but, it's, you know, it's like plowing a field... You know, it's just you know, breaking up the soil. That's what the practice is doing. And so it's just breaking up, you know, a lot of the tendencies, you know, and patterns and deep conditioning of the mind. And so just trust that process, you know. And so some of it will come up in the dream state. I would not particularly go investigating it, but let it do its own work in the course of the practice and just say so it's really it's much more a sense of trusting the process rather than going in and digging okay there's (laughs) you may not feel this at the moment or maybe there's absolutely nothing better to be doing. I mean, it's an amazing thing. You know, if, going back to the suffering in the world, I mean, if more people would actually take the time to look and understand their minds, you know, and the kind of uh, freedom and purification that comes from awareness, that's all, just from being aware. I mean, it really is the greatest service we can give to the planet because everything flows from this. You know, the more wisdom we develop, as I say, compassion is the activity of wisdom. It is the activity of selflessness. So it's just a fantastic thing. And I hope at least at different moments of the day you reflect on that. Thank you. Let's sit for just a couple of moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.